0: It's good to be back with you here at church. This morning we're going to start a new series. Uh, we're going through the epistle, the letter of 1 Timothy. Uh, but as we, before we dive into the text this morning, I just want to give you some kind of background, some historical context to what we're dealing with to kind of hopefully give us a proper background and, and setting. So you're hearing the kids go out. If you're, uh, if you're still in the pews and you want to go down to Children's Church, now's a great time to uh, make your way downstairs. So we're gonna talk about a couple key people, one key place in particular. Uh, first Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is writing, presumably, to first to Timothy. Timothy is at Ephesus, so we need to know about Paul, we need to know about Timothy, and we need to know about Ephesus. And so what I wanna do is kind of walk you through a timeline that relates to those three people and where they intersect. And the stories are interwoven throughout the, books of, uh, the book of Acts, And then we can piece together some other information from the different uh, epistles, letters that Paul wrote as he traveled and did missionary work. And even while he was in prison, he continued to write and support the churches. And so uh, Paul at this time um, is at the end of his ministry. He's at towards the end of his life. He um, is traveling, going back to many of the churches that he first visited. Um, And in here is where we see this letter written. But I want to go all the way back to Acts chapter 16. And Acts chapter 16 is the first time we meet young Timothy. And so this is at the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. In Paul's second missionary journey, he arrives in the region of Lystra and Derbe. And he comes across Um, some some believers at Ephesus they don't quite um, haven't received the full gospel yet they know about John but they haven't um, heard of Jesus Um, and so Paul had been to Lystra and Derby a few years prior and it was during that time that Timothy's uh, mother uh, grandmother probably became Christians uh, maybe Timothy himself and so Timothy's father was a Greek. He was a Greek, but his uh, mother and grandmother were Jewish, and now they were converts to Christianity, Um, at least his mother and his grandmother were. And so it's been a couple years since Paul first came through Lystra and Derby, and now he's back. And this time, uh, Timothy is commended to Paul. They're saying, hey, this young man is sincere. He's devout. He's a true uh, disciple of Jesus. And so what Paul does is say, hey, Timothy, why don't you come along with me? I'm about to begin my second missionary journey. And Timothy says, all right, let's go. He drops everything, leaves everything in his hometown, and he joins Paul on his second missionary journey. And one of the first places they go to on, his, on, their, on Timothy's first trip with Paul is the city of Ephesus. And here in Ephesus, uh, Paul and Timothy minister for about three years. And there they evangelize, the church is kind of born, and, and they're there and ministering uh, for several years together. About three years after they first arrived in Ephesus, Paul tells Timothy, Hey, Timothy, I want you to head out from Ephesus, and I want you to go to a place called Macedonia. And he's going to go work um, in Macedonia, and it's not long after that that Paul departs Ephesus as well. And so you have the beginning of the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus is presumably going well. Paul and Timothy are traveling around, spreading the gospel, preaching, uh, planting new churches. And then we get to a passage in Acts chapter 20 that again references this church at Ephesus. Paul wants to go to Ephesus. He wants to catch up with this young church, but he knows he's not going to make it because he's on his way to Jerusalem. And so he calls the elders. Well, he doesn't call them. He sends a letter, presumably. And he says, hey, meet me in this little town. It's about 40 miles south. Um, Send the elders because I want to tell you something. And so the elders go, And here's the passage in Acts chapter 20 that's relevant uh, to where where we will be heading this morning. It's Acts chapter 20, it's verses 29 to 31. Paul says to the elders at Ephesus, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert." Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And so Paul gives this warning to the elders at the church at Ephesus. It's been around now for five or six years. Paul goes on to Jerusalem. Timothy is out doing his thing. A couple, years, a couple more years go by. And what we see is Paul and Timothy um, are just together together. A lot, and if they're not together a lot, they're communicating a lot, and and we get the picture of Timothy being one of Paul's closest companions, one of his closest missionary partners, if not his closest partner in ministry. He continued to travel with Paul. He was sometimes sent to other churches, and then we get told in the books of in the book of Acts that Paul is arrested. He's arrested. He has a long journey to Rome, taking over a year. And he's in prison in Rome and while he's in prison in Rome it's around 60-ish 61 AD uh, Paul again writes to the church at Ephesus this is the letter we now know as Ephesians so Paul writes Ephesians and he encourages the church we get again this picture of he cared about Ephesus he spent a lot of time there he cared about them he kept in contact with them he sent them letters And then it's not soon after he sends this letter to the church at Ephesus that Timothy goes to see Paul in Rome. And he arrives and he stays with Paul while he's under house arrest in Rome. And Timothy is mentioned in the following letters that Paul pens. He's mentioned in Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. And so sometime after they work together and they um, write those letters, Paul's released from Rome. Paul's released from Rome, and this is kind of getting us up to date as we prepare to dive into 1 Timothy. And Paul is traveling around visiting all these churches that he has now planted over the past decade or so. But he gives Timothy a job. He gives Timothy a job to go to Ephesus. And what we'll find throughout our study is that the prediction from Acts chapter 20... Five or six years earlier, when Paul had talked to these elders at Ephesus, had come true. There were wolves in the church. There were false teachers among the church at Ephesus. And even worse, these false teachers had risen right up from within the church. This isn't outsiders bringing some outside message. This is false teachers that have come up in the church. And so we're going to look... At how Paul instructs Timothy. But I want to just ask you to use your imagination for a few minutes and maybe try to bring this into our context. All right, so wipe your memory of everything you know about Chapel of the Lake and pretend that you've never really become a Christian. Maybe you've heard a little bit about Christianity here and there, Maybe you've heard about this man, Jesus, from a couple decades ago, 10, 15, 20 years ago, perhaps. But you don't really know. You're in uh, the St. Charles County. And St. Charles County is an economic hub. There's all kinds of worship. There's pagan this and pagan that. Everyone kind of does their own thing. Worship is whoever they want to. There's not really a whole lot of Christians around. But then, church planter, missionary extraordinaire, Keith. Shows up. And he shows up and he starts walking. He goes to the synagogue. Some of you were probably there as Jews. He goes to the synagogue and he preaches Jesus. And some of you believe you're converted. And then you go around and you're bringing other people into this new church. In Lake St. Louis. In St. Charles County. And with church planner missionary extraordinaire Keith. He has along with him. This young intern, that would be me. (laughs) You just know him as Aaron. He's just a young guy following uh, Keith around. And so for three years, Keith and I, mostly Keith probably, I'm just following him around teach you the truths of the gospel, tell you about Jesus, tell you about God, the one true God, how to worship, how to come together, opening the scriptures from the Old Testament and telling and showing Jesus to this church. And the church continues to grow. And the church has a, a foundation based on the work that Keith and his young intern have a part in. For three years, we all minister together. But after about three years, he says, hey, young intern Aaron, I need you to go over to Illinois and give them some help. So I take off and I'm gone. And it's not long after that that Paul feels like he has to go and he has other churches to plant. He has other people to tell about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the church continues to go well for a while here at Chapel of the Lake. It's being led by the elders that Keith has appointed. But over time, things begin to uh, fall apart. You had gotten a letter from Keith. Uh, You had gotten Keith, some elders went and met up with him, and he gave the elders of this church a warning. He said, be careful, there's some wolves coming from among you. And all of a sudden, things are beginning to change. You, you didn't really notice at first, but somehow some of the, the elders, they seem to be rising to more prominent positions in the church than others. Some people are picking their favorites. But worse than that, you don't really even recognize some of their current teachings. It's not something that you heard uh, Pastor Key say or even his young intern. And, but you also can't really point to what's wrong with some of these teachings. You know, you, you start to listen to Elder Bob. And Elder Bob usually sits over there. He starts talking about the Illuminati. And he begins a Sunday school class, but it's all focused on the ancient Greek gods and mythology and all of this stuff. And you're like, I don't know how that fits in, but okay, he's an elder here. And then you've, get, you've got Elder Ted, and he starts talking about his family history, but he gets way too into it. And he won't stop talking about it. And then he starts telling you that you need to sign up for an Ancestry.com account too. So you can find out if your lineage goes as far back as his lineage. Because he can trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. And he says depending on who you're connected with. It kind of tells you what godly line you're a part of. And then he even starts uh, getting really into the law. And then he starts telling you that you better start obeying all the things of the law. And so he makes up a nice checklist. And he starts passing out grades on Sunday morning about how well he thinks you're keeping the law. And then there are the rumors. The rumors about Elder Harley and Elder Rob. That they're constantly arguing. They're constantly arguing about what style of music is to be played on Sunday mornings. What the worship team should wear. And which coffee should be served on Sunday morning? Now just imagine, it sounds a little silly, but just imagine that that's the church you find yourself in. I think we would all agree that that's a church heading for disaster. But then, I walk in. You know, the old intern, that young intern who still looks pretty young, who you haven't seen in over a decade, but you remember that he was with Keith. He was even mentioned in the letter that Keith had sent a few years ago. But I don't just come in and sit and introduce myself and sit in the back. I come up to the podium, and I start teaching, and I start telling you how you're wrong, and I start speaking with authority, and I say that Keith sent me. How would you feel about that? I hope some of you would like it. Yeah, here's a young guy coming in to set us straight. But you know, with all the chaos and all the confusion, I bet some of you would be struggling with that. I bet some of you would be a little skeptical. I bet some of you would question my qualifications. You would wonder if a guy that young could really have any authority at all. And why should we listen to that guy? And you know what? How do you think I would feel? Because even with over a decade of experience under my belt, I don't think I would have been comfortable in that position either. I think I would have been full of questions. I would have been uneasy about my ability to accomplish the task. Could I live up to church planner and missionary extraordinaire Keith? I would be worried. Maybe timid. This was very much the scenario of the church in Ephesus. As Paul is writing to Timothy, Paul knew he was sending Timothy to do a difficult job. Throughout this letter that we'll see over the next few weeks, he encourages Timothy to wage warfare, to fight the good fight. He charges him to stop false teachers, to teach, to lead, and to even command the church. This young Timothy, probably in his mid-thirties, is given the responsibility of discipling and holding elders accountable, as well as instructing the wealthy, and even um, instructing those who would be tempted to look down on him because of his young age. This was no easy task. But the reason for the letter To Timothy is actually made clear right in the middle of the book. I'm going to take you to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 14 and 15. Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar And buttress of the truth. What Paul is writing to Timothy is of utmost importance. Paul understands exactly what's at stake, and what's at stake is the church itself. What's at stake is the gospel. And that in order to get the church back on track, Timothy would not only have to stop the false teachers, but that he would also have to instruct the believers in the truth. Here in this verse, Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you're going to have to remind this church and teach this church what it means to be the church. Not just how to act when they show up on Sunday morning in the pews, but how the church is to live As the church. As the household of God. And so throughout this series. We're not going to be just talking about church matters. About issues pertaining to the church. But we're also going to be talking about the fact that church matters. Because it's the foundation of the truth. Because it's the vehicle by which God shows the gospel to the world. And reveals His glory to a lost people. This is what's at stake if we lose sight of what the church is meant to do. If we lose sight of the truth. If we lose sight of the gospel. The mission that Paul had sent Timothy on was vitally important for the church at Ephesus. But it's of equal importance to us today as Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, in St. Charles County, we need to know truth, we need to know the gospel, and we need to know that church matters. So with all of that background, that imagination, the setting of the book, we're going to dive in just to the first section of chapter one this morning. And we're going to look at how Paul begins. How's he going to begin to encourage the young Timothy, who is now charged with really fixing, helping a struggling church? And so, where does Paul start? Well, you know where Paul starts with Timothy? Where he starts with everybody else. He starts with Jesus, he starts with the gospel we're going to see all throughout the rest of our time this morning is that the gospel matters. The gospel matters because it's the gospel that unites us. Look at the first two verses of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of our of God our savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace mercy and peace from god the father and christ jesus our lord as paul begins this letter to timothy he begins by asserting his authority now i don't think he needed to do this for timothy's sake timothy had all the respect in the world for his mentor but he starts with this to let the church know that there's authority behind this letter But read carefully, because the authority that Paul's claiming is not from Paul. The authority that Paul is claiming is from Christ Jesus, by command of God. He is reminding the church, he is even reminding us today, that this message is from God. That he speaks not just as an ordinary man, but that he speaks as an ordained apostle who is speaking on behalf of Christ himself. There's no bigger way to say, pay attention, church. This message is from God. The church at Ephesus is being reminded that it's Jesus himself that unites the church it's not Paul. It's not Timothy. It's not their preferences. It's not their styles. It's Jesus that is bigger than any one man or any one teaching. It's about something greater, and that something greater is the gospel. And Paul has been commissioned by Christ to spread and to teach that gospel. This is also what unites Paul to Timothy. He says, he calls Timothy several times throughout all of his letters, my true child in the faith. When he writes the letter to the church at Philippi, this is what he says about Timothy. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Even with Paul and Timothy, it wasn't just about a a shared cause or, or camaraderie or even hobbies or work. It was Jesus. It was the gospel that tied, that brought them, and that united them together. And here in this passage, we also see. Paul describing Jesus. How does Jesus unite us all together? How does Jesus unite the church together? Well, Paul describes Jesus in these first two verses as Savior, as our hope, and our Lord. And while we can't spend much time on those three words, those three descriptions, they do give us quite a wonderful picture of what the gospel truly is. He says, God is our Savior. We are united in God because we all need a Savior. We're all united as believers by His grace. And so just as Paul's life was transformed by Jesus on the road to Damascus, just as Timothy's life was transformed when he met Jesus, presumably through the preaching of Paul, just as you and I, if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, have been transformed by Him, We know Him as Savior, and that should unite each one of us together in the church. He is not only our Savior, but He is our hope. We are all looking to the future that God has promised. This is important because it allows us as a church of individuals to keep us focused on the things that matter most. The things that matter for eternity, not this world. Because we know that this world is not our home. And we answer to God, not men. And Paul says Christ is our Lord. That we are all called to follow God with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds and all of our strength. And that's going to look very different for each individual. But we will be united in one purpose under one Lord and his name is Jesus. This unites us in a common purpose. We have a common Savior and a common hope and a common Lord. He is the only standard by which we compare ourselves. Let's not fall into the trap of comparison. We are united by the same grace and the same Lord of Jesus. And so if we understand that it's the gospel that unites us, that leads us to the next few verses where we learn it's the gospel that instructs us. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, we read this. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We've already addressed that false teachers are a big problem Here in these verses, it's just fleshed out for us. They're teaching a different doctrine. They're devoted to myths and genealogy and speculations, vain discussions, ignorance, all this stuff. We don't really know the exact nature of all these teachings. But it really doesn't matter. Because whether it was false teachings of 2,000 years ago or if it's false teachings of today, if it's false, it is to be rejected. If it's not of Christ, it is to be rejected as we consider our teaching, if it's contrary to the gospel, it must be rejected. The gospel instructs us. And what the gospel tells us that if it's false, if it's not of Christ, if it's not of the gospel, then get rid of it. Don't endorse it. Don't have it in your church. Kick it out. Paul had to kick out a couple of likely elders in the church of Ephesus. We'll see them at the end of chapter 1. I don't know if their name was Bob or Ted or Harley or Rob. It wasn't any of them. But that's how serious it was. Paul was ejecting elders from the church, saying, you can't be here. The gospel instructs us. If you're not teaching Jesus, if you're not teaching Christ and him crucified, get out. Sound doctrine rejects false teaching. But that's really only half of the equation what we also learn in this passage is that sound doctrine instructs our hearts. Look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5 says, the aim of our charge, the aim of our charge to get rid of these false teachers and these false teachings is love. Is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, I don't know about you, but I, I really enjoy being right. I actually think I'm right pretty often. There's a tendency in some circles to think that being right is all that matters. And I want to say this carefully because when we're talking about the gospel, we absolutely must get the gospel right. Otherwise, you're a false teacher and get out. We must get the gospel right. But just getting the gospel right isn't enough. If all the gospel is to you is a, is a regurgitation of facts or Bible verses, if all the gospel is to you is an intellectual assent, you've missed the point of the gospel because it's bigger than that. We must get the gospel right, but the gospel must also transform our hearts. See, sound doctrine rejects the false teaching, but it instructs our hearts and it tells our hearts that we must love. And the love that we must display, it must come from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The invitation to Christ is a personal one that goes beyond your intellect. It may start with the mind, but it needs to be transferred to the heart. And you have to have both if you want to call yourself a Christian. Everyone has a heart and a conscience, but only those who have met Christ can have the hope of a pure heart and a good conscience because it's only a, only, because a pure heart and a good conscience is only made possible by Christ who has cleansed our hearts and informs our mind by His redemptive work and grace. Paul here tells us that the result of the gospel is a sincere faith. It's one that is grounded. It's one that is real. It's something that is not just based on a myth. It's not just hypothetical. No, we have conviction. We believe that we serve a real God. That Jesus was God manifested in the flesh and will put all of our weight on him, his work on our behalf. This was exactly the opposite of what was being promoted by these leaders at Ephesus. Speculations and myths and genealogy. See, this is so important for us to understand because when the church diverges from the gospel, it's born out in the chaos that comes with it. This is why there was divisions, distractions, quarrels, arguments, suspicions all throughout the church. Because they had diverted from the gospel They had lost sight of the fruit of the gospel, which is faith and love. When we lose sight of the gospel, we get the results again in verse 6 and verse 7. certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They had abandoned the gospel. They had forgotten faith. They had abandoned love and good conscience. And in turn, they were filled with vain discussion, meaningless talk. They had made themselves fools. They had become people that wanted to be teachers and wanted to be knowledgeable, but they had no idea what they were talking about. Have you ever been in that kind of a discussion where you know the person you're talking to has really no idea what they're talking about, except they're doubling down on it? And you're just like, man, you're just proving yourself to be a fool. Or maybe you've been in that discussion with a person who you're arguing with and you know they're wrong, but they just keep getting louder and louder and louder. And maybe if they just get loud enough, then suddenly it will become true. You all know that's not how this works. But this is the result of diverging from the gospel. And this is what these false teachers look like. But there's a subtle warning here for us in our church and especially you as church members, is a reminder to all of us not to judge our preachers or teachers by either their charisma or their confidence, but by the content of their teaching and the product of their lives. Our leaders are to be grounded in the gospel and transformed by its love. We teach the Bible not for popularity or posterity, but because we know the gospel to be true. We want everyone to know the grace, the mercy, and the peace that can only come by knowing the one true God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, and this is why the gospel matters. And so in our last section of our text this morning... Paul anticipates a question that is likely in the minds of many of his hearers. They might be thinking to themselves, well, then do we need the law at all? If it's the gospel that instructs us, then can we just throw the law out? Do we need it? And Paul's answer is an emphatic yes. Yes, the law is still useful and good. But ultimately, it's the gospel that transforms us. I'll show you what I mean as we walk through our last four verses for this morning. Starting with verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law of God is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. This tells us that the law, first of all, restrains sin. That we'd have no idea what was right or wrong if God didn't tell us. And so here is the first purpose of the law. To restrain sin. To show us what is right and what is wrong. What is true and what is not. To show us the holiness of God. And his standard. And to show us where we and how we are to act. And how we are not to act. But that's a tall order from a holy God. And so he goes on to tell us the second purpose of the law. Which is to expose the sinner. The law restrains sin, shows us what is right and wrong, but then in turn it exposes our own sin. He continues on in verse 9. It's not just, it is for the lawless and the disobedient. It's for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's a big list of sin. And you know, this list isn't exclusive. This isn't just the only sins that there are. But Paul is speaking in general categories. And what he's doing is confronting his hearers with the law. He literally walks through commandments five through nine in order. He says, those who strike their fathers and mothers. That's the fifth commandment. Murderers, sixth commandment. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, that's related to the seventh commandment. Enslavers, that's related to the eighth commandment. Liars and perjurers, that's related to the ninth commandment. And in case he missed anything, and he says any, anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. This is supposed to break you. The law is supposed to expose your sins. Say, well, I'm not all of those things, but I fit in one of those categories. Exactly. You're a sinner, and the law has done its job. The law has exposed you as a sinner. How do we know what is sound doctrine and what is not? How do we know if we're sinning or if we're not? How do we know what's true and what is not? Well, this is kind of the meaning of sound doctrine. It's actually a medical term, sound as in healthy. And what you do is you look at the fruit, you look at the results, and what we see is that Sound doctrine is healthy teaching. It's stuff that's found in the gospel, and guess what it produces? The fruit of the Spirit. As opposed to the sickly doctrine that's being promoted by the false teachers, and you look at what it produced, which is chaos, dissension, confusion. So the law is meant to restrain sin. The law is meant to expose the sinner. It also does one more thing. That is of supreme importance. We're going through a catechism with our children. And question number 15 answers this beautifully. We call it questions. So it's question number 15 to us. Because some might be asking, well, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? If my kids were here, they could probably sing it back to you. They say, that we may know the holy nature of God. And the sinful nature of our hearts and thus our need For a Savior. You see, the law doesn't just restrain sin or expose the sinner, it points to the gospel. Paul says that this is the purpose of the law. The law is good whenever it is used lawfully, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The law is supposed to break you, the law is supposed to reveal your sin, but also the law is to drive you to the Savior. To bring you to the gospel. And this is a glorious truth. Because the law will not make your faith any more sincere. But Christ will. The law will not purify your conscience. But Christ will. The law will not purify your heart. But Christ will. The law will not cause love to overflow from your heart. But Christ will. This is why we need both the law and the gospel and make a distinction between the two. Spurgeon says this. He says, avoid a sugared gospel as you would shun a sugar of lead. Seek the gospel which rips up and tears and cuts and wounds and hacks and even kills. For that is the gospel that makes alive again. And when you have found it, give good heed to it. Let it enter into your inmost being as the rain soaks into the ground So pray the Lord to let his gospel soak into your soul. It's this God glory bringing gospel that has been delivered to us. That was entrusted to Paul. That was entrusted to Timothy. That was in turn entrusted to the church at Ephesus. And yes, it's entrusted to us as a church. Chapel of the lake. It's a warning that if we miss or abuse the gospel, we are not only harming ourselves, we are harming the witness to God and the witness to his glory and his gospel. And so next week, as we come back and finish out chapter one, we're going to look at some of the more personal implications of this gospel. But as we close for today, I see at least two significant applications for us. Number one, we simply must know the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? If you're a Christian, you ought to have an answer. Because if you can't describe the gospel, I'm not sure if you're a Christian. And I don't say that to be harsh. I say that because we have to understand the gospel to claim Christ. We have to understand the law and where it's brought us and the grace that Jesus brings us. But could you explain it? Can you explain it to your neighbor, your family member, your children? How do you explain the gospel? Do you know it? And if you don't know it, come see me. Come see missionary extraordinaire Keith. Talk to someone to have the gospel explained to you, maybe for the first time this morning, so that you may know Christ and his salvation. We must know the gospel. Can you share it in your own words? Next week, we're going to look at verse 15, which is one of the most glorious passages of all scripture. Glorious verse. This saying is trustworthy, trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance, of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You must know the gospel. Would you be able to identify a false teacher if he stood in the pulpit before you? Can you name differences between us and the Mormons down the street? Could you explain the difference between Islam and Christianity? You might not have all the answers, but you, could you identify what is the pure gospel? Could you identify what is clearly false teaching? We must do that as Christians. That's not enough. Maybe on a superficial level it is. But we must also live the gospel. Because if we know the gospel, then we also know the gospel has transformed our hearts. And that's going to result in right living. Right thinking results in right living. And so if you're thinking wrong, you're also living wrong. We must know the gospel, but we must also live the gospel. As Paul has laid out for us, the gospel matters. It should be the foundation of not just what we do here on Sunday morning, but what we do every day as Christians. Is the gospel shown in the way that you are loving your neighbors? Is the gospel shown in the way that you are following his commands? Is the gospel shown in the way that you share and display your faith? You see, the gospel that the problem at the church of Ephesus is really not that Uncommon. There are people who wandered from the truth, and we just as easily could wander from the truth if we neglect this gospel, if we get swept up in cultural fads or political parties or conspiracy theories, arguments about lesser things, preferences, and styles. But if we lose sight of the gospel in any of that, we are in danger of falling into the same trap as the church of Ephesus. We want to be a people and a church that knows the significance and the weight of the gospel. It transforms our mind and our hearts and our lives. And so lastly, just three tips. Three tips to apply this message that you can do this week. Number one, be in the word. Neither I nor Pastor Key or anyone who stands in this pulpit speaks with any authority that is found in ourselves. The only authority in our teaching comes from delivering the Word of God to you accurately. Do not let this Sunday morning message be the only time that you are interacting with God's Word. Dive into it daily. Enjoy it. Learn it. Memorize it. Join one of the six Bible studies that are going to be going on over the next couple weeks here at the chapel. Invite another couple over to go through and study the Word together. When Sunday school finally resumes, hopefully sooner rather than later, come. Come to class to learn more about God's Word. Pick a class to attend. Be in his word. You must know the gospel so that you can live the gospel and the gospel is found here as you meet with God. Secondly, pray. Pray for wisdom and pray for discernment. Please. Pray. Pray for your elders and your leaders. Pray for your preachers and your teachers. Pray that the Spirit would speak through them. Pray that the Spirit would speak to you. That the Spirit would transform you from the inside out. That your heart would be pure. That your conscience would be good. That your faith would be sincere. Pray for missionaries as they spread the gospel. This is a way to live the gospel. Pray. Be a praying people who knows the gospel and His word. And then lastly, look for gospel opportunities? What if you started each day in the word and in prayer and then asked, God, show me how I can reveal your gospel today. How I can point someone to you, to your glory in a world that so desperately needs it. What would it look like if we looked for ways not just to point out people's sin, but rather looked for ways to point them to their need for Jesus, their need for a Savior who extends grace? What if we were less concerned about being right and more concerned about showing grace and love? What would it look like if we were less worried about our reputation? And focused more on showing off the glory of God that is found in his glorious gospel. What would it look like to be a people in a church that really, truly understands the gospel matters most? What if we knew it? If we owned it and we lived it? I bet we would see lives changed. And that should be our prayer. Will you pray with me? Dear, I'm thankful that this is not my word. That this is not some word of even a great scholar. But this is your word. It is holy. It is right. It reveals to us our need for you. A savior. And it tells us the glorious truth of your grace and mercy that can only be found through your Son, Jesus. Lord, help us be a church that knows the gospel and that lives the gospel so that we might make your name great, that we would be a light for the gospel because that is what matters most in a lost world. We pray these things in your name. Amen.